for those who know every line, and for those finding Star Wars for the very first time, welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. My name is Anna. I'm Sam. And today we're getting a little bit farther into season two of The Bad Batch. We're covering Entombed and Tribe, season two, episodes five and six. There's nothing in common between them except for our protagonists, The Bad Batch. We open Entombed, season two, episode five, with Omega and Wrecker looking for spare parts of the junkyard for the Marauder. But when they get back to Sid's bar on Ord Mantell, it turns out they didn't just pick up odds and ends. They found a compass that will lead them to a treasure island. And Fee convinces them to go on this treasure hunt because they have nothing better to do and they're bored. Well, and they have all of this information on good authority. Fee is an actual pirate and probably knows her way around some treasure. But importantly, during her introduction, she's telling a story to the barflies and Tech and Hunter are like, that story changes every time she tells it. So she's not the greatest authority. She's like a pirate. <laughs> she's she's a pirate. not like a great pirate so far as we know. So there's not really any good reason to go check out this treasure island, but everyone in the bar is looking at Hunter with puppy dog eyes. <laughs> it's giving, please, Dad, can we go through the McDonald's drive through And Hunter's a great dad. He says yes. They land on a freaky deaky raised dead planet mm -hmm. and the compass activates. They're following the signal into a secret entrance in the side of a mountain and Fee figures out that this planet is probably Skara Nall and this mountain is the home of the heart of the mountain. The Arkenstone. This is kind of like the Star Wars version of like, oh, it's a map to Blackbeard's treasure. Yeah, for sure. They're standing in the entryway and they figure out that this is their first puzzle. So Fee figures out that they can push different tiers of like the tin can of the wall around to match up the carvings. It's very Pokemon Jim. And Omega figures out that if you shine a light through the compass, it makes different markings on the wall glow. So she uses the compass to line them all up. There is a glorious swell of music. The entrance into the mountain opens. Very good. But as they journey deeper into the mountain, they realize that something is very fishy about this treasure tunnel. They're also being followed by a creature. Yeah, there's like a dinosaur monster, and he sticks his head down into the tunnel they're walking through and he chomps on Wrecker and they get him free, but the blaster fire causes a cave-in. So the gang gets split up. Fee, Omega, and Hunter go after the treasure. Echo, Wrecker, and Tech look for a way out. And at this point, Omega is turning into the number one best treasure hunter apprentice ever. <laughs> for their second puzzle, she finds more glowing markers on the ceiling. So she fits the compass into the wall and twists it and the whole tunnel flips 180 degrees so they can walk on the glowy bits. 
And then the Bad Batch reconvenes just in time for one more puzzle door. And then voila, it opens on a chonky, big butt crystal. (laughs) It is this glowing blue crystal, like about two feet long. I honestly thought it was like a teeny tiny microchip. And then Fee gets up to it. And it is indeed very large. So as soon as Fee grabs it out of the plinth, Literally the entire mountain explodes. There are like fog lights shooting up out of the top and it turns into a volcano and there are air horns and it is very suddenly apocalyptic. It turns out they have not been inside of a mountain this whole time. They have been inside of a giant metallic reptar (laughs) robot and he's angry. So this Mecha Godzilla thing immediately <laughs> starts roaring and lasering furrows 20 feet deep into the landscape. I honestly, one time I played a Hamtaro Game Boy game on my Game Boy Advance, and there is a giant metallic Godzilla that shoots energy beams out of its mouth. And that's what this was giving me. I thought that game taught you to speak Japanese. It did a little bit. <laughs> and it gave me a, an undying love of tiny hamsters. <laughs> So Godzilla is shooting laser beams out of its mouth, and if they don't stop it, it will explode the Marauder. They figure out that the only way to stop it is to put the heart of the mountain back into the heart of the mountain. But unfortunately, right then, the Schmonster decides to make its strike as well. So it's juicing up the energy beam between its molars, and they're like, put it back in, put it back in, and then they put it back in. The whole mech has to swallow the energy beam back in. It explodes, it topples. They are zero for two in treasure hunting because the heart of the mountain melts. And then they leave empty-handed, quite literally poorer than when they arrived, because it probably took a lot of starship fuel to get here. And Fee has this little droid named Mel who came with them to the entrance, and Mel gets completely vaporized. And they're all very sad, but Fee's like, no, I I keep backups for Mel. It's fine. No worries. I got a USB in there somewhere. (laughs) So that's Entombed. What happens in Tribe? So Tribe starts off And the Bad Batch is zooming in, in the Marauder, to a super cool space station, which is called Vanguard Axis. They leave behind Echo and Omega on guard duty as they walk through this space station. And apparently what they're doing is they're selling unmarked chain codes. Yeah, forged chain codes. Forged by Tech's own hand. And this Vanguard Axis is run by a bunch of like really beefy, sketchy droids. They're very scary. So as this deal is going down, Omega hears a cry off in the distance. And so she starts sneaking through this landing bay on this very, like, they're obviously very bad smugglers. And she comes across a young Wookiee who's getting shocked. So the Wookiee beats up one of his captors, Omega beats up the other, and Omega and this Wookiee are running around trying to get free. So alarms start going off, problems happen, Echo and Omega join forces, and they're like, yes, of course we're not letting anyone get captured or enslaved or killed or whatever. The rest of the Bad Batch rolls up, 
And we end up in this huge standoff. The leader of the Vanguard Axis is talking about how they're going to sell the Wookiee. The Wookiee's perfectly safe. A buyer is going to pay a high price for them. And the Bad Batch is like, look, we don't do this kind of stuff anymore. But at that moment, the Wookiee sees in the pocket of the leader of the Vanguard Axis his lightsaber because it's Gunji. His name is Gunji and he's a Jedi Padawan and we love him so much. And then Bad Batchery ensues as they are like, oh yes, we absolutely know how to fight with a Jedi. Even Omega knows how to fight with a Jedi because she pulls out her bow, she's back to back with Gunji, and they proceed to kill all the droids and make their way to their ship and fly off. Gunji's in the back of the ship and is like distraught and afraid because he doesn't know what these clones are up to because the last time he saw clones was during Order 66. Mm-hmm. So Omega bonds with him over some food and it turns out that Hunter does in fact speak a little Shirawook more than tech with his, you know, Google glasses will. But they decide to take Gunji back to Kashyyyk because they have some contacts in Kashyyyk. As they're headed down to the planet, they see that the city, well, village that they're going to, is covered in smoke and deforestation, so there's already a problem. They land nearby, and as they get closer, they see that this village has been burnt to a crisp, but tanks are showing up, and these tanks show up, and they're full of Trandoshans with one captive Wookiee. So once again, bad battery ensues because these tanks are the old separatist tanks and they're being driven by these Trandoshans. And so the bad batch is like, look, we know how to blow up these tanks. Gunji even manages to stab down one of the tanks with his lightsaber. A fire starts and they have to put out the fire and the Wookiee who was captured by the Trandoshans escapes, but also comes back and rescues them on a massive tree cat kind of thing. Yeah, some kind of like adorable loth cat situation, but 20 feet tall. They're huge. They're thundercats is what they are. Thundercats. Yeah. Oh my God. So the Bad Batch gets brought back to a different village and the leader of the village is a very old Wookiee named Yana. She's like the the head grandmother. Yeah. she's got. You can tell she's old because she's got like a hood. And (laughs) (laughs) And some gray highlights. Queen. And so the Wookiees know that the bad guys are coming their way and they decide to ask the forest for help. Yeah, we get some really beautiful insights into Wookiee culture. They believe that Kashyyyk belongs to the trees. Mm -hmm. The trees are their allies. And so they all kneel down and press their palms against the trunks of these like primordial jungle trees. Mm -hmm. And the trees come up with a plan, and it is a A-plus plan. Back at the site of the last Bad Batch Massacre, <laughs> the, uh, it turns out that these Trandoshans are also working with stormtroopers. So they are working with the Empire, and they're specifically just burning down the forest and burning down Wookiee artifacts. They say, oh, hey, this tank was taken out by a lightsaber. Let's go get him. And the Trandoshan leader is like, 100 Wookiee pelts to the one who brings me the Jedi. So these Trandoshans show up at the village. And right as they're about to get there, the ambush ensues. The Bad Batch starts a massive ambush and is being chased by the bad guys through the forest. Now, importantly, right when they landed on Kashyyyk, 
they ran into a nest of kinrats, which are like 10 foot high spiders. And Gunji was able to be like, look, they're just afraid, as afraid of us as we are of them and calmed them down using the force. This time they run through the Kinrath nest and these big Wookiee warriors are like pounding the trees like, hey, spiders, it's lunchtime. And they lead the entire Imperial force into the nest. Whereupon much screaming ensues <laughs> as the Trandoshans and the Empire is just run before them by spiders. They are promptly murdered. But the leader, Venomar, takes out his flamethrower when he sees Gunji and is like, I'm going to get that Jedi myself. And the best tool for taking out a Jedi is a flamethrower. He chases Gunji through the woods and Omega's there too. And as the warriors, as the adults are all cleaning up, they're like, hey, where are the kids? They run off, but it's turned into Gunji versus Venomar. Venomar creates a huge ring of fire around him and he's fighting with Gunji. Gunji slices the flamethrower in half and then... Kinrath's jump in. Gunji turns off his lightsaber and is like, I am not spider food. <laughs> Venomar is like, what are we doing? He is getting pulled into the canopy of the jungle, screaming and poisoned. They string him up with their spider silk and leave him hanging upside down in the jungle to die one of the worst deaths we've ever seen in Star Wars. You can tell that Gunji's like, I should probably help him, but... <laughs> <laughs> signs so, point to no. Signs point to no. So back at the village, Wrecker is getting in touch with his Wookiee side. Echo's getting in touch with his Wookiee side. They're slightly different. Wrecker's drinking entire turtle shells full of like fermented sap. I don't know. And he's learned how to do the Wookiee roar. So yes. he's they're just gurgling back and forth to each <laughs> other. It is so lovely. And Omega and Gunji are communing with the tree in thanks. Hunter and Yana are talking and saying, the trees mourn when a child leaves, but they rejoice when a child comes back. And so Gunji will have a home with these people. And that the friendship and the family that they've put together is, is really important. Oh. So the Bad Batch makes another ally and they've rescued a Padawan and they've made friends with the Wookiees and they've killed a bunch of Trandoshans and really the most disgusting way possible. Okay, honestly, 10 out of 10, great <laughs> success. I have to point out the synopsis for Tribe is the Bad Batch brings a new friend home. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't even watched the episode yet. And I was just weeping. I was like, incredible. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> so what do you want to talk about? Well, let's start with Entombed. This is a fun episode because we get to spend more time with Fee and get to see her. She's got such a great affect. So first of all, in this episode, I see a whole huge element. It seems like their armor has changed again. Ooh. At the very beginning, we see Wrecker, and it's like he's got sort of an armored poncho thing that's like a nice red. Mm. And it looks really cool. Their armor continues to be different. And when they're sitting in Sid's bar, they all have on sort of their civilian clothes, which are very different. Hunter, of course, has the largest bandana possible to cover himself up. As he deserves. My boy Hunter gets the biggest bandana yeah, he I mean, wants. He's the boss, so he gets the biggest bandana. Absolutely. This is the law of the galaxy. <laughs> but when we see Fee, she's just like 
like when they walk in, the door closes behind them and the Hunter is like, you've locked us in here. And she's like, there's always a way out. Like, chill out. It, you don't understand. These things are always trapped. There's always a way out. It'll be fine. I've lived to do this at least twice. <laughs> yeah. Fee had such an interesting thing going on as a quasi pirate queen this episode because the beginning of the episode is trying to tell us Fee is not a very good pirate. Yeah. But as we get further and further into the episode, Fee is a pretty good pirate. She's pretty effective as a treasure hunter. She has great treasure sense, which is very funny. It's sort of the uh, the trope term for it is genre savvy. But she knows that she's like in a death trap. And she's like, of course, there's a way forward. She's like, yeah, we're in a puzzle. There mm -hmm. will be booby traps. There's always a way out. And there's always a way forward. We just have to figure out subsequent puzzles. Yeah. And... I think the lesson is either be very good at your job or scam your way through a job that you're at least moderately good at to reap the benefits of someone who is great at their job. Hmm. I think it's like fake it till you make it. It's giving Martez sisters. A little bit, yeah. But she's also got just a really fun look about her. Her hair is swept in like one direction. She carries... The Bad Batch all carry those vibro knives, and she has like a vibro cutlass, and her crazy droid is just like a trash can. I just love, I love Fee in this episode. She's great. I also love Fee in this episode. I love that Fee and Omega get to buddy up and be cool with each other immediately from the get-go because there's so many cute moments with them. Mm -hmm. When they're on the Marauder heading to Scar Nall. Fee kicks her shoes up onto the center console table. So Omega kicks her feet up and they're both like sitting with their hands behind their head. And Omega keeps like looking at Fee out of the corner of her eye being like, oh, what's the cool pirate queen doing? Okay, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. They're I, so cute. I love that for Omega because Omega doesn't have like female role models in her life. Okay, I literally wrote that down. Well, she's got Sid and Sid's like your drug dealing grandma honestly yes yeah, sid is not a good influence but she is a influence so <laughs> <laughs> is real sketchy <laughs> i just like they're so good fee and omega when they're looking for treasure together because fee will like wink at omega and like pat her on the shoulder and tell her good job and she's a natural mm -hmm. like petition for a fee and omega treasure hunting spinoff <laughs> I would watch the heck out of that. It is. It's nice because the previous time I went to go get treasure, which Tech and Echo are continually talking back towards is when they went to go get the war chest from Count Dooku. And they're like, hey, we've tried to get treasure. It was cursed. Like, it turns out that going after treasure is really difficult. And Fee is like, yeah, of course it was cursed. Don't worry about it. Like, you guys are you're using your head. You're, <laughs> just use your feelings. Just try to try to have some fun. Use your greed. And she also has this encyclopedic knowledge of all the deep lore. So Scaranal predates the Republic. It is extremely old. There are some really fascinating tidbits about how all of the stuff that they're going through is from way before the Jedi times. Mm -hmm. And so there's some really fun Easter eggs there. One of them is that the Mechazilla, when it pops up, is basically the exact same body form as a tall neck from Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a cool callback because that's a video game that takes place after 
it's a post-apocalyptic thing, like thousands of years in the future, and all of the places in the food chain have been replaced by mecha creatures. This is are, a Star Wars video game? It's not, but it's got this really fun post-apocalyptic vibe, and that is what this planet is. Now, what is a Star Wars game that very much meshes with what's going on here is Jedi Fallen Order. Mm. So for both of these episodes, Jedi Fallen Order has a really big influence. One of them is that there's an entire massive level on Kashyyyk in Jedi Fallen Order. But the other one is the heart of the mountain, when it pops up, is very much reminiscent of Zepho technology from Jedi Fallen Order, which is a canon video game. So in that game... You are Cal Kestis, who is a lost Padawan. You are following in the footsteps of a Jedi master who was sort of being an archaeologist for the Zepho, and he's finding out all of their secrets. As you are this main character, Cal Kestis, which is super fun, you go to these tombs, and each one has these like ancient guardians as well as like normal regular monsters, but these ancient guardians have big lasers and this very cool art style, and they look just like this creature. So this is basically a Zepho creature. And whatever the Zepho were up to, in the sort of lore of the game, they definitely used the Force, but also like worked their workers to death to entomb each other. So the deep lore of Star Wars, stretching back before the Republic, has some really, really interesting things in it. And this is one of those examples of tying together this like thousand year old lore, which I think is really cool. Oh, I do love that. I love that because it makes some of these episodes that don't really feel like they push the plot forward more useful. It feels like sometimes we get these episodes, I'm thinking of Rampage in season one of The Bad Batch, Mm -hmm. that didn't really do a lot for the plot But it did a lot to kind of tie together some of the elements that the Bad Batch season one was trying to tell. Yeah. And these Easter eggs make me feel like this episode of the Bad Batch season two is trying to make more connections between Bad Batch and the rest of Star Wars lore and trying to like knit all of the weird, random, isolated elements of Star Wars together into this big, cohesive galaxy with this big, cohesive timeline. I think that it's telling a story that although the Republic is dead and has been replaced by the Empire, that the Republic wasn't forever. Mm. And that the Republic wasn't necessarily the best thing ever. And so going back and finding all this history and people are like, oh, this history has been lost forever. When in reality, particularly later, Hunter says to Gunji, put your laser sword away. He doesn't even call it a lightsaber because that would be like the specific Jedi term for it. The knowledge is lost so quickly that when you go back and look and say, over the course of history, there is still treasure, there is still cool stuff. And that being these people who are living at the edges of society, which is what the Bad Batch is doing, you can explore that, I think Mm. is really interesting because when you are deeply embedded in society, you don't care about those kind of things. But when you're at the edges, you're like, surely there exists something beyond what our current society is. And let's go explore that. And in the Bad Batch's case, literally explore it. Well, and also the thought of this 
random planet and all of this random technology and this legend coming from a time before the Jedi, I think actually softens the blow of the Republic falling too. Yeah. Because it's saying if you zoom out and look at the big picture of the galaxy, empires and political systems fall all the time, Mm -hmm. but things survive. Things survive. Ideas survive. Mm -hmm. Legends survive. Legends survive. And going after the legends is the fun part. Yeah. What I was getting from this episode was that very clearly this is an homage to Indiana Jones. Yes. There are some shots that are like note for note the same as Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I appreciated very much in this episode that the batch doesn't leave with any treasure. Yeah. Because... Longtime fans of this podcast may know I hate Indiana Jones. (laughs) I hate that series with all of my little Grinch heart. And it's very delightful to me that they go in to steal this story treasure from a planet that doesn't belong to them. And they leave with the unethical archaeology having failed. They don't get to keep the spoils of their piracy. Yeah. The the pirate the legend itself here is really interesting because the heart of the mountain is this crystal and it's full of some sort of energy. When they take it out, the guardian activates. And when they put it back in, the guardian shuts down. At least that seems to be what's going on. And when they land, I made a note of like this plant has crazy geology. How are there these crazy trenches carved throughout it? And why is everything dead and burnt? So it seems like this heart of the mountain crystal was actually put in place to tame this creature. Oh, yeah, because what I picked up on is that Scar and Nall had been raised before, probably by the Guardian. Yeah, I think so, too. And so like putting a limpet mine in it to suck its energy out into a crystal, sure, that crystal's worth a lot, but the planet is dead Mm -hmm. because of this rampaging creature. I think that's such a really, it's it's such a crazy plot element to have, like, your job is not to go assassinate this creature. Your job is to go put this creature to sleep. Mm -hmm. And then our heroes wake up the creature and then realize, oh, put it back, put it back, put it back. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I love that. I picked up on that, too. I was just thinking that Entombed may have been a little too subtle, I think we were missing a couple really crucial tie-ins to maybe strengthen the themes a little bit. We had to kind of put together that Scar and Nall had been absolutely destroyed Mm -hmm. by this creature. And I also think even one more line of dialogue might have tied in some of the undertones of the episode a little better. Maybe like, for example, if we got to connect Omega wanting to find this treasure to her wish earlier in the season to steal Dooku's treasure, his war chest, to kind of make up for the Bad Batch thinking that she's a burden, I think it would have given this episode more of a place in the season. It would have strengthened her character. It would have strengthened the themes. It was just, it was a little too subtle for me. That is true. Both of these episodes to me are are subtle, but I've also learned from season one of The Bad Batch that these the hits are going to keep on coming and we're going to be circling back to these previous episodes and yes. saying, oh, wow, that actually is relevant now. Yes, I do see that totally. With that in mind, 
Do you want to talk about tribe? Why do I? Do you find yourself in a situation where your droid is in danger? Or do you find yourself in a situation where your droid is losing its memory? For just the low, low price of 499 credits a month, you can have reliable backup droid memory for whenever, whatever you ask your loyal droid. You really need it, but the droid, it might get into an accident, it might get into a crash, it might get into ordinary droid mischief. It might get stolen by a bounty hunter. It might get lost in the spa. It might run away to join a rebellion. You need to have backup. It's a replacement for loyalty. Droid backups, $4.99 a month. And King Katunko Heads, if you would like your ad to play here, right smack in the middle of our episode, you can email us at growingupskywalker at gmail.com and we'll play your ad right here with all of the joy and delightfulness and compelling ad copy that you read and listen to here. So speaking of pulling together elements from previous stories. Oh my God. Speaking of, yes, that is what we are doing. There is so much lore written about Kashyyyk and it all pulls together to form the most amazing story when we get to visit. Oh, that's not what I was thinking about at all. What were you thinking about? I was thinking about how many threads and reverberations we got from the Clone Wars that we revisited just in this episode. Oh, yeah. We've got Trandoshans hunting Wookiees, like in the um, Ahsoka hunted arc. Yes. And then we've also got Gunji, who we know a lot about from the other Ahsoka being hunted arc. (laughs) (laughs) Ahsoka and the younglings being hunted by Hondo. Oh, my gosh. Pirates. Yeah. And then we have the connection between these Trandoshan slavers and the slavery of the empire. We do. And we also, this isn't really a callback to the Clone Wars, maybe just a little bit. We also get the beginnings of the imperial incursion onto Kashyyyk. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's back chatter about how the empire is like stripping the planet for resources. This episode to me had themes for days, and all of them were political, and all of them were so, so, so interesting. We get Wookiees as Mm eco-warriors, like warriors who go into hand-to-hand combat to defend nature. We get anti-colonialism because the Trandoshans and the clone troopers are trying to raise Kashyyyk and steal all of their resources to gain. We get the resource curse, which is just when your planet or economy or system can't get ahead because you're very, very rich in natural resources. And so people keep coming in to take your resources Mm -hmm. and then sell them at a profit and you're left with nothing. Mm -hmm. And for me, the takeaway of Tribe was if you try to exploit a planet and burn down all of the forests, you do deserve to be strung up in the middle of the jungle and left for dead by... Spider bite, like <laughs> death to invaders. This was Star Wars Fern Gully. It really, it really was. Every giant forest is like that. And I, I enjoy that. I'm a ton. so here for it. I'm the eco warrior. <laughs> Bringing up that colonialism point, I think it's really interesting because the Empire probably has no love for Trandoshans. 
but they work with them because if the Trandoshans and Wookiees were to work together, that'd be very scary for the Empire. So you play one force against the other. And that is a key component of colonialism. Uh, it's actually leading to many of the current issues in the Middle East are because a like minority was put in power by the colonizers mm. over a majority. And then you have my, a minority rule problem. Instead of like dividing the countries based off of the populace, you divide them based off of lines of control for the colonizing countries. So you're the veteran fan. Give me some background to help me f- like fill in the gaps of this Star Wars lore. Are Trandoshans originally from Kashyyyk? No, they're not. Okay, so it's not really pitting a minority and a majority group against each other on Kashyyyk because Wookiees, so far as we know, are the sentient species that we're following that are the only natives of Kashyyyk. No, that that's true, but pitting one group against another mm-hmm. is definitely, like one minority group against another minority yeah. group is very common. But the Trandoshans are invaders on Kashyyyk. They are. And another interesting bit, speaking of me being a veteran fan here, there is the deep lore of Kashyyyk, of the Kinrats, of all these things is so cool. Those are actually from the original Knights of the Republic video game circa 2003, I want to say. The same type of spider creatures. Mm. And your character, Revan, goes to Kashyyyk down to the forest floor and has to make their way through these dark side creatures. And it's the same type of thing of like, it's great when you're being hunted to draw your enemy into the nest of Kinraths. Yeah. The Star Wars trivia for Tribe talks about how they wanted to actually just import Kinraths like into Kashyyyk for this episode, but they were a little too scary. So they kind of created a sub species, which is called netcasters. And like, as we see, the netcasters are scary if they're all coming after you, but they can definitely be reasoned with using the force. They respond to Gunji when Gunji's like, listen, my lightsaber's deactivated. I come in peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is all part and parcel of if you F with the forest, the forest will F with you. But if you come in peace and communion, the forest will literally bend its will to help you succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Being on Kashyyyk again is super fun. All the times we get to see it because we see it also a little bit in episode three. There's a short battle there. And it's such a beautiful planet. Mm -hmm. It's the most foreign planet to the rest of Star Wars, to me. Being in this place where the trees are a thousand feet tall is just remarkable. But it's also a planet, like I said, where you spend a whole bunch of time in Jedi Fallen Order as a young Padawan. And doing that call out to what Gunji was up to and what Cal Kestis is up to is really fun. There seems to be in the canon sort of a line between video games and the rest of it, despite the fact that the video games, um, just the new Battlefronts and Jedi Fallen Order games are canon. But you kind of need to move, you need to migrate things back and forth. And once again, we have very cool, not so much puzzles, but just the vistas are Mm. amazing. I think it's so cool that this episode very clearly worked on two levels. And I think the most successful Bad Batch episodes have worked on both of these levels. It works for the veteran fan Mm -hmm. who has played the video games, knows the deep lore, is seeing all of these patterns repeating throughout the series. 
And it also works for a new fan who has seen at least enough Star Wars up until this point to be able to put some of the thematic pieces together. Yeah, I've seen the prequel movies and I've seen all of the Clone Wars and I've seen Tales of the Jedi and now I'm watching Bad Batch. And there were enough beautiful ripples from the Clone Wars that this episode worked for me too. And well, I think that's really incredible. So the most important ripple is obviously Gunji himself. Oh my God. Do you want to talk about the other Gunji related political theme that I picked up on? What's that? It's assimilation. Mm, yeah. So my thinking about tribe, and I say this because Star Wars is a political piece of media. Mm -hmm. The original trilogy started with fascism, so I don't think it's a stretch to bring in other political issues. My thinking was that Tribe was a little bit of Star Wars taking on the assimilation schools that Native American kids were forced into and drawing some comparisons. Very much so, despite the fact that Gunji does only speak Shirawook. He is like, I don't know what village I'm from. I don't, I've never been on this planet since I was an infant. I don't know anything about it. I think that's really interesting, although he remembers it in his dreams. Yeah, there's that heartbreaking moment when they're wandering through the jungle, right? When they get to Kashyyyk and Hunter's like, don't you remember anything about this planet? And Gunji says, only from my dreams. Oh. And we see when he gets to the Wookiee village, it's actually in the notes, it's called the Wookiee Sanctuary, which I love. He's looking around to see what other Wookiees are doing to follow suit, right? Mm -hmm. They kneel before the massive trees to ask for their help. And he has to look sideways and be like, okay, what are they doing? Okay, I will kneel down mm -hmm. and I will press my palm against the trunk of this tree and learn the ways of my people. Yeah. I want to be clear. I don't think this comparison was saying becoming a Padawan and growing up with the Jedi is as bad as assimilation boarding schools were for Native American kids. Gunji gets to keep speaking his language. He gets to keep his haircut. No one's forcing him to convert to Christianity and like forsake everything about himself. But I think it was meant to show that becoming a Padawan divorces you from your culture of origin and you're missed when you're gone and you miss out on the lessons that other people are learning. The difference is that when Gunji was removed, he was erased, but the schools, the boarding schools were set up to erase the culture. Yes, that is the key distinction. But Gunji, when he comes back to Kashyyyk, is now part of something again. And that's really what Hunter is getting at, is he's like, hey, doesn't matter, Jedi or no, he needs to be in a community, in a family. And it may as well be a family that can all speak his language on a planet that he enjoys and loves. And what I find most interesting about that is that it goes against what the Republic-era Jedi teachings are of isolation, of selflessness to the point of asceticism. Mm. And Gunji is going to live as a Wookiee. Mm. He's going to have a family. He's going to have a family. He's still going to be a Jedi. It actually draws the most beautiful comparison between Gunji and his Wookiee village and Omega and her Bad Batch village. Exactly. Hunter was like, okay, we have a lost kid. She is a clone. She needs to be with a family. We are the family that can understand and nurture and protect her. Omega's coming with us. 
oh, we have a lost Wookiee Jedi. Mm -hmm. He needs a family. He needs to be with people who will protect him. We're going to send him to live with these Wookiees who will love him and keep him safe and let him be the best of himself. Exactly. Oh, my God. That is why The Bad Batch is such a warmer show than The Clone Wars. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it has, like, oh, man, both of these episodes have great bad batchery. I wrote that down. Like, <laughs> when the Bad Batch is sitting there, particularly with Gunji, and they're like, oh, yeah, we've got a lightsaber wielder here. We know what to do with that. Wrecker, please proceed to lift up this pallet and beat up people with it. The rest of us will throw grenades and smoke grenades and shoot everything. We'll be running around. We'll be sprinting through doors and shooting everyone on the other side. It's just like watching the season seven Bad Batch when they're with Anakin and they're like, hey, this works great. We love having a Jedi. We love not having a Jedi. We're just great. I love watching it. There was one more note that I had about Gunji, my love, which mm -hmm. I was also like, when I saw the lightsaber in one of the death droids pockets at the very mm -hmm. beginning of Tribe, I was like, wait a second, I know that wooden handle. And before Gunji even reaches out his hand to force grab it, I was like, that's freaking Gunji. We saw him find that crystal conquer the cave on Ilum. He had to like walk across an ice cavern and face his fears. Yeah. I was like, we know him. And I think that one of the really cool things about Tribe is that it doesn't erase, it's not erasing the importance of Wookiee culture. And it's also not erasing the importance of Jedi training for Gunji either. Yeah. He is ultimately successful in helping to defend his people because of his Jedi training. Because he doesn't always resort to violence. And when he does, he uses non-lethal violence. Right. Most of what he's doing with his lightsaber is running around and slicing off the ends of the Trandoshan cannons, right? Mm -hmm. I think it was such a cool message. It was like, no, you shouldn't be taken away from your home. But if you are, the lessons you learn while you're gone will also help you when you come back home. That is most clear at the very end when Venomar is getting envenomed and getting just <laughs> yeeted up into the canopy by Kinraths or netcasters. And he seems about ready to cut him down. Yeah. But Omega distracts him and they run off. And I wonder how long Genji's going to have to live with that of, I could have rescued this person who came to my planet, killed my this whole village, killed so many of my people, but it would have been the right thing to do for me to rescue him. That, I think, is a little bit of what he and Omega were doing at the very end when mm -hmm. they're communing with the trees. For yeah. me, that felt like a very sacred ritual. And I almost wonder, like, yes, I think Gunji was learning, relearning how to commune with the trees, but it also felt like a little bit of a prayer. Yeah. Maybe yeah. for forgiveness for what he did. For perhaps oneness with mm. the cosmic and living force to be okay with doing violence in self-defense. Yeah. It's very much a feeling of adaptation. Gunji 
grew up in the Jedi culture, learned this way of peacefulness and violence as a last resort. And he, for better or for worse, adapted when he left Venomar for dead. So I wonder if he's also coming to terms with the fact that he is no longer the Gunji he used to be. He's a new kind of force user. He's a new kind of Jedi. So moving forward, we're going to see several Jedi who were raised either as Padawans after Order 66 or come into their own well after it. And that's uh, Cal Kestis and Gunji so far. And it's such a fascinating life that they're going to have to live being in this world where they have training or they don't have training to be who they need to be. They feel the strength inside of them. They feel the call of the force and they don't know what to do with it. And if they give into the dark side, it will swallow them whole. And if they give into the light side, they have to really go against the currents of most of the civilization they're in. Imagine trying to be a force user on the cold, mean streets of Coruscant or Mos Eisley. I mean, we've imagined it. We've seen Ahsoka do it. Yeah, but she has had the training. Imagine doing it now if you were four years old during the Bad Batch and you were a force user. What would happen to you? You know what that reminds me of? It is the first Wookiee arc of the Clone Wars. It's when Ahsoka finds all of the stranded younglings on the Trandoshan Island being hunted for sport. And we see that they have basically given up their training. Yeah. They didn't have a locus or an anchor point for their training. Mm -hmm. So they're really no longer using the force at all. They're just trying to survive as regular people. And when Ahsoka comes in with all of her training and knowledge and skills and her ability with the force, she's like this light. But I can imagine that if you don't have that you might feel more lost than just a regular person. Yeah, that's that's genuinely sad. God, that's dark. <laughs> I don't want to lose sight of how delightful Tribe was. I thought it was amazing. To me, the most delightful part is watching Wrecker realize that he was a Wookiee the whole time. Oh my He's just God, a Wookiee right. in a human suit. <laughs> These subtitles are Wrecker doing Wookiee roars the entire fight. And can you imagine that coming at you? As soon as, so they're they're planning this whole huge ambush and there's a bunch of like generic Wookiee warriors, you know, with their big bandoliers and, and riding their Thundercats and stuff. And- <laughs> And Wrecker's like standing next to one the whole time. And they're like, yeah, let's go uh, rip the arms off of some creatures. Like, let's just let's just cause a ruckus. That's what Wookiees do. And Wrecker's <laughs> like, I'm a Wookiee. I've been a Wookiee this whole time. <laughs> Give me that bowl of tree butter. I'm going to chug this. You don't know what you're missing, Echo, you nerd. This is the good stuff. This is the good life. Let's be Wookiees. Oh, my God. <laughs> Petition to let Wrecker assimilate into Wookiee culture. He's he is that. He's just a Wookiee. He is. spin-off series, Wrecker and the Wookiees. <laughs> Give me my credit when you make it. It's gonna be so good. I uh, I was playing a DD campaign a while back and we ended up on this this village, and they're like, oh yeah, you know, all summer we have feats of strength and then like adventures and occasionally but not too often these horrific monsters come in from the north over the past and they're already pretty weakened but they're really scary i'm like let's retire here and that's what <laughs> that's what wrecker is up to he's like 
I don't know about you guys, but when it comes time to hang up our blasters, I am stripping down. <laughs> I am chugging Rogaine. I'm growing a belt. <laughs> I am moving to Kashyyyk, <laughs> where my people are. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, Sam, that feels like it's about time to talk about our favorite people slash Wookiees of this episode. <laughs> Is it time for Baywatch? It's time for Baywatch. It's time for Baywatch. <laughs> Sam, who's your bay? For both of these episodes, it's Wrecker. Mm-hmm. Because... When they go after treasure, Omega's like, oh my gosh, treasure. And Wrecker's like, that sounds fun. Like, I am all about treasure. Sitting in a bar all day is genuinely boring. You guys are too afraid of stuff. And then he gets to inhabit his Wookiee self. You know, he's he's great. He seems to come into his own. And both of these episodes shine a nice little spotlight on him being silly. I also love that we open entombed with Wrecker and Omega just hanging out in the scrap pile together. Yeah. I love that when Omega's hanging out with anybody, it's Uncle Wrecker. He is very much the lead babysitter, and he's so good at it. What's great about that scene, they're in this massive dusty pit full of starships, and Wrecker is carrying a, an entire engine on his shoulder, just like a V8 <laughs> slung over a shoulder. Casual. And then when Omega's like, check out what I found, Wrecker's like, nice, I good know. stuff. He's like, amazing. Everything you have chosen is perfect. And like, as a person who doesn't know how to talk to children, I'm taking notes. <laughs> I listen to how Wrecker talks to Omega. I'm like, oh, okay, great. This is how you are a positive role model for a child. Thank you, Wrecker. Because then Omega's like, check out this cool stuff I got. And Tech is like, you should have left this all in the junkyard. Oh my God, right? That's my response. <laughs> I'm too much Tech, not and, enough Wrecker. And then of course, Fia is like, I yes, this is a compass of magic. But the just Wrecker being Wrecker, being having a good time. It seems like he is moving into the role. He he still enjoys all this stuff, but if any of the Bad Batch besides Omega are truly enjoying the turn their life has taken, it's Wrecker. Mm-hmm. He just flings a two, three, six hundred pounds over his shoulder and goes into battle or not. He's perfectly fine either way. He is a content human Wookiee being, and I appreciate that. I love that about him. Wrecker never change. For real. <laughs> How about you? Well, I want to give an honorary shout out to Fee. Yeah. Because Fee is great. There's a really lovely moment in Entombed when Omega figures out the second puzzle and she flips the tunnel 180 degrees and then she can't get her compass back because that was the key that she used to flip it. And Fee just kind of pats her shoulder and she's like, oh, it's okay. Scar and all just reclaimed what was its, what was Scar and all's. Yeah. And Omega's eyes get so big and she's like, Scara Nall reclaimed what was Scara Nall's. And it just reminds me of that moment when you're a little kid and some grown-up blows your mind with their amazing wisdom. Mm -hmm. And like everyone has that moment growing up and I just love it. I appreciate Fee for the same reason I appreciate Wrecker in this arc of just it's fun. Yeah. We're gonna live. 
don't worry. This is not like the highest stakes thing. We don't have to be hiding from Imperials and trying to steal this and on the run all the time. Sometimes we're just having an adventure. Yeah, we are adventurers. This is what we do. I love that. But my actual Baywatch, it's going to be Hunter. Really? I think Hunter throughout both of these episodes was extremely helpful in so many teeny tiny ways Mm -hmm. and just was the person noticing the most and pushing the plot forward. He's always just kind of there. He's explaining things. He's rescuing people. When Fee almost falls out of the Godzilla because she's trying to rescue the heart of the mountain, it's Hunter who came after her and grabs her forearm and pulls her back up. And like not for one second in Tribe does he tell the Batch not to help the Wookiees. Oh, of course not. He's like, we're here. We brought this small Padawan back to his family. Of course we will stay and help you fight off these invaders. Like there's there's no possibility that we're not going to do that. He's also fun on Kashyyyk because he they land and he's like, the village is that way. It's been burnt three days ago. Tanks came through here. They're hover tanks and he know they came he knows they came through there. Amazing. Because he's hunter and he just gets to know that kind of information. Well, yeah, that's the thing that I loved about him and why he's my bae. He is continually picking up on what other people are not picking up on. Mm-hmm. When Gunji's hiding in the back of the Marauder, Omega's like Why won't he come out and be my friend? And Hunter's like, listen, he thinks we're clone troopers. He saw what happened in Order 66. He is afraid of us. Yeah. And no one else had really put those pieces together. You know, the Bad Batch has a big gap in its bimodal distribution of intelligence. Because you have at one end tech, and then at the (laughs) other end, the rest of the Bad Batch And then in the middle is kind of where like a normal empathic person would be. And they just don't necessarily have that information. But Hunter is there because he does recognize what people are up to. He's the closest one to the empathetic one who's not completely handicapped by empathy, which I would say Omega a little bit falls into. Well, she's a kid. She's a kid. Yeah, because Echo is PTSD king and Wrecker is a child and... I forget sometimes that kids have this never-ending rechargeable empathy battery. Mm-hmm. I do love that. It's it's funny, though, because as with all things with kids, they're like the coverage of their emotions is kind of spotty because they'll be like, oh, yes, I love this and this and this. I don't understand that. And I hate it. And I love this. And you're like, that is a car tire. Like, how can you hate a car tire? I don't <laughs> It's my car tire. Yeah, yeah. It's the spottiness is is funny. And watching Fee and Hunter and Wrecker and the whole Bad Batch raise Omega is really nice in this episode. And watching her make friends with Gunji, who also deserves a nod for being a just awesome Padawan. Ugh, the best. I do love that you could feel a little worried about Omega's upbringing based on all of the horrifying things she's seeing. Mm-hmm. But she's also meeting like really lovely people. She got to hang out with the Sindolas. Now she's been semi-adopted by a Wookiee village. She's got grandmother Fee and sketchy grandmother Sid. She knows Rex and the Martez sisters. Mm-hmm. She knows everyone. And I mean, even Fennec Shand is like, you're all right, kid. You Fennec know? is her cool murder aunt. 
there is a connection there. They like each other. I like that for them. Anyway, Hunter's the best. I just love that he took everything in stride. He's like, oh, the trees have a plan? Perfect. Whatever they say, we will do this. <laughs> he's got he's he's really got sort of the uh aggravated dad energy of like, you know what? I was perfectly happy chilling with the boys like driving around in the souped up roadster causing a ruckus and now i have a family and and we still have the souped up roadster we still <laughs> cause a ruckus it's just sometimes more chaos ensues than i'm used to and that's fine it's there's a, a car seat in the back that's okay that's the price we pay it's different chaos <laughs> yes good i did really like these episodes i really liked this baywatch it's good stuff <laughs> All right, Sam, what are we watching next week? We have season two of The Bad Batch, episodes seven and eight, The Clone Conspiracy and Truth and Consequences. Oh, dear. You know, my family, we grew up in southwest Colorado and we drive down to Southern California a lot through Arizona. And there's a whole bunch of towns named things like Truth or Consequences <laughs> or Show Low in terms of cards. And uh, I always appreciated that. Truth and consequences, truth or consequences, that's a it's a wonderful, delightfully ominous turn of phrase. Ominous is the word I was going for. I'm a little affrighted. These episodes will mark the halfway point through season two, which is wild. We are working so hard to not spoil ourselves. So if you do send us correspondence or like regular emails or if you're like texting me about meeting up for board games later do not tell me about what's going on in the bad batch Please. because I, we are both currently as of this moment completely treading untrammeled snow right we are now. going in blind going in blind that's how we like it a little bit <laughs> I, I have to give a quick shout out our friend Raphael Moron, who's got uh, the Geeky Dad podcast with the Multiverse Kids. They did do a little segment about us in their Bad Batch season finale episode, and they very helpfully were like, Anna and Sam, do not watch this episode. <laughs> do not listen to this podcast episode until you finish Bad Batch. And I was like, God bless. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you, Multiverse family. They're the best. So if you've finished Bad Batch, please go watch the Geeky Dad recap of the Bad Batch season finale. Otherwise, keep chugging along with us. We're hitting the halfway point of season two. We've got four more weeks of Bad Batch, and then we're hitting Solo. Holy cannoli. And then Kenobi. Holy Kenobi. Holy Kenobi, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> As always, you can find us on social media, wherever you get your social media, podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We're growing up Skywalker, wherever your Skywalkers grow up. If you love Growing Up Skywalker, please drop us five stars, whether you're on Spotify, leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And if you want bonus Skywalker, you can become one of our patrons. We release bonus content most weeks on the Patreon, and those memberships start at just $3 a month. We appreciate all of your support. And send this episode to someone who is reconnecting with their culture of origin. Or send it to your murder grandma. Yeah, send it to your murder grandma. <laughs>
Murder ants. Just any of your your female relations who are murderers. Yes, we love that for them. Welcome all murderers here. All murderers welcome. We are a true crime podcast now. <laughs> and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.